0: Welcome back to another episode of the Ninja Nerd Podcast. Today, we're continuing our mini-series on autonomic pharmacology. We're now moving on to the flip side here. No longer the sympathetic, now we're talking all about the parasympathetic nervous system. We're starting off first with cholinergic agonists so we're going to be talking all about that acetylcholine that's dang right that's dang right right (laughs) so we're going to have a lot of fun as usual first things first grab your membership to ninjanerd.org get your notes your illustrations please it helps support us and it we really hope that it helps you so please go ahead and, and do consider that so we have to first talk now about cholinergic agonists zach any words of wisdom before we get started um, buckle up. No, I'm just kidding. It's, it's, <laughs> it's a pretty straightforward one. I think this should be one of the kind of easier ones of the autonomic pharmacology podcast. So. All right. So let's start by talking about the physiology for cholinergic agonists. We have to now talk all about the parasympathetic nervous system. So when they, when the parasympathetic neurons are releasing acetylcholine, we have to figure out where this is acting on. What receptors is it affecting and what effect will that actually have?
1: All right, my friends. So now when we talk about the cholinergic system, basically, this is the neurons that are releasing acetylcholine. There's two real kind of like, um, really, I think, nervous systems that are involved in the release of acetylcholine. One is the parasympathetic nervous system. That's going to be the big one, but also the, the somatic nervous system. So don't forget that acetylcholine is released from somatic neurons onto skeletal muscles, which cause skeletal muscle contraction. Now, really quickly, when we talk about acetylcholine, there's two receptors that it binds to it to exert its effect. One is the nicotinic receptor. That's the one that's primarily, I just want you to spend your time focusing. It's primarily the one that is found on the skeletal muscle cell membrane. So at the neuromuscular junction. So if the somatic neurons release acetylcholine. It'll bind onto the nicotinic receptor, cause positive ions to flow into the cell, depolarize the skeletal muscle cell, trigger calcium release, and cause the skeletal muscle to contract. Boom. That's it. Okay. Okay. So there may be drugs that are acting as cholinergic agonists that can stimulate that particular receptor they can act as a nicotinic receptor stimulator and increase sodium ion influx cause depolarization calcium influx and cause the skeletal muscles to contract important to remember that The other receptor that acetylcholine actually does bind to and exert a particular effect is muscarinic receptors. Now, this is the one that's more associated with your parasympathetic nervous system. So if your parasympathetic nervous system neurons are releasing acetylcholine, they're not releasing it onto skeletal muscle, my friends. They're releasing it onto things like cardiac muscle. They're releasing it onto glands. They're releasing it onto smooth muscle, stuff of that effect. And so you need to know these muscarinic receptors. And really, I don't want to make it too complicated. I want us to focus on the most commonly utilized ones. And that's the M2 receptor, the M2 receptor, the muscarinic type two receptor. When acetylcholine binds onto this one, you really only find this one in the heart. And when I mean on the heart, it's primarily on the nodal system. So your AV node, your SA node, things that control your heart rate. When acetylcholine binds onto this M2 receptor, the M2 receptor triggers a cascade via the G inhibitory protein. And basically G inhibitory protein shuts off cyclic AMP and causes potassium ions to leave the nodal cells, which causes the nodal cells to hyperpolarize. And if they hyperpolarize, they don't send action potentials as easily. So it blocks conduction if you think about that. So that can lower the patient's heart rate, right? So if I give a patient some type of medication, if you will, um, that is an agonist in this sense. It will treat effectively to reduce the patient's heart rate. You know, if you think about that, again, if I'm I'm giving them a particular medication as a cholinergic agonist, it's going to bind onto the M2 receptor. If it binds onto the M2 receptor, it's going to cause, again, potassium and efflux, hyperpolarize the cardiac cell and cause them to have less conduction, and that can drop the heart rate. Okay, there, that's it. So we got a nicotinic receptor on the skeletal muscle, M2 receptor on the heart tissue. Where's all these other ones? All right. So there's a bunch of other ones. The primary one that I want you to remember is M3. There's, there's so many. There's actually five types of muscarinic receptors. There's M1, 2, 3, 4, 5. The primary ones that I think are even worth remembering are M2 and M3. M2 on the heart, inhibitory M3 on a lot of other glands and smooth muscle tissues that are stimulatory. So in other words, acetylcholine binds onto the M3 receptor, it's going to cause an increase in intracellular calcium with inside of those cells. And that may cause the cells to release particular uh, molecules. It may cause secretions. It may cause the smooth muscle to contract in a particular way. So it's important to remember that. So what are some organs that if acetylcholine bound onto the M3 receptor, what would it do? Well, you can find it on the GIT. If there's smooth muscle within your GIT, if you bind onto that, acetylcholine causes an increase in calcium in those cells and it causes them to contract, what's it going to do? Improve GI motility. If it's on the bladder and there's M3 receptors in the bladder and you stimulate that, you're going to cause the bladder cells to get filled with calcium and to contract, it's going to cause increased urinary bladder contractions. If it's in the bronchial smooth muscle and you cause calcium to get loaded into those cells and then they contract, it's going to cause bronchial constriction. If you cause calcium to get loaded into like the ciliary body, it may cause this puppy to also undergo contraction and also control some of the secretion of things like aqueous humor. There's another thing, glands, a bunch of different glands. So your sweat gland, I'm sorry, particularly, I I apologize, more your um, salivary glands, your lacrimal glands, things to that effect, some of your GI glands. It'll stimulate those cells to increase calcium loading and cause secretion from glands. So again, you got GI contraction, bladder contractions, bronchial smooth muscle contractions, ciliary muscle contraction, which controls the shape of the lens, but also can cause aqueous humor production. And then on top of that, it also can cause gland secretions. There's one more, and it's a weird one. It can actually act on the endothelial cells. Cause the endothelial cells to release nitric oxide and cause the nitric oxide to diffuse into the smooth muscle in the blood vessel wall and cause the blood vessel to vasodilate. So you may get an indirect vasodilation effect from acetylcholine binding onto the M3 receptors on the endothelial cells. But again, if you think about this, you give a cholinergic agonist, my friends, what is it going to do? If it hits the nicotinic receptor, increases skeletal muscle contraction. If it hits the M2 receptor, causes a decrease in the conduction of the heart, reduces heart rate. If it binds onto the M3 receptor, it can cause GIT, motility to increase, increased urinary bladder contractions, increased bronchospasm. It can cause ciliary production of aqueous humor to be increased. It also can cause the blood vessels to vasodilate indirectly through nitric oxide release from the endothelial cells. And it can cause increased secretions from salivary glands and and your lacrimal glands and other GIT and respiratory mucosal glands. I, I hope that makes sense. Now, moving into the next aspect here, we have to understand that acetylcholine, yes, it does bind onto these receptors, but once it binds onto the receptors and it performs its function on all these different target organs, what happens with the acetylcholine? Does it just like, you know, hey, it's just going to dissolve and dissipate into, you know, into air? No. What happens is acetylcholine is actually broken down in the synapse by an enzyme called acetylcholinesterase. Acetylcholinesterase will basically break down the acetylcholine into kind of its little constituents, and then some of the acetylcholine can actually kind of get recycled. So in other words, whenever you break down acetylcholine, it's really kind of just essentially made up of acetylcholine and an amino acid called choline. So when you break it down, you break it really pretty much down into choline and choline will actually get recycled. It takes back up into the, the neurons axon terminal and then just gets recycled and reutilized to make more acetylcholine. But either way, if I break that acetylcholine down, that's the significant component here. And the who breaks down the acetylcholine again, I want you guys to remember this, acetylcholine esterases. So I want us to now think about this for a second when I talk about cholinergic agonists, I can actually affect acetylcholine response on the receptors in two ways. One is I can act like acetylcholine, bind directly onto the M2 or M3 receptors and increase the response, right? That's one way. What would you call those? Direct agonists or I can increase acetylcholine by preventing it from getting broken down. And if it doesn't get broken down, it's going to have more of the acetylcholine that's not getting broken down and metabolized present in the synapse to bind onto the receptors and stimulate those M2 and M3 receptors on its own. Well, I'm not directly binding onto the receptor. I'm indirectly increasing acetylcholine to bind onto the receptor. How would I do that? I inhibit the acetylcholine esterase. If I inhibit the acetylcholine esterase, now it can't break down acetylcholine and acetylcholine stays in higher levels in the synapse to stimulate those receptors. Those are indirect agonists, my friends. So we have direct agonists and indirect agonists. Let's now talk about those. Direct agonists are gonna be uh, primarily three particular drugs. Bethanacol, methacholine, Pylocarpine, and if you really wanted to, you can add another one and call it carbacol. Okay. So I have, let's say four drugs. Bethanacol, methacholine, pylocarpine, and carbacol. Bethanacol is a direct agonist. Methacholine, direct agonist. Pylocarpine, carbacol, direct agonist. They bind directly to the receptors. But you got to ask the question, my friends, which receptor is it? Is it the muscarinic? Is it the nicotinic? Do they do a little bit of both? All of them except Pylocarpene and carbacol are pure muscarinic receptors. So, bethanacol and methacholine are pure muscarinic receptors. So, let's talk about those two then. If they only bind onto the muscarinic receptors, they will have really no true effect on skeletal muscles whatsoever. They'll bind onto the muscarinic receptors. Now, the question that you have to ask is, which muscarinic receptor, Zach? Is it more preferable to M2? Is it more preferable to M3? It's primarily M3. So they'll bind onto the M3 receptors and the tissues that they prefer to bind onto is on the GIT on the bladder. So if they bind onto the GIT smooth muscle, what are they going to do? They're going to squeeze that motherfucker and they're going to cause increased contractions and they're going to blow the patient's rectum out. No, I'm just kidding. But (laughs) if you, if you think about it, a patient who has like an ileus and they're just not moving things along, or maybe they have a little bit of a gastroparesis. They don't have a lot of contractility of the muscle there because there's not a lot of nerve supply. If you give this drug, it literally will kind of decompress the bowels because it'll cause an increase in GM motility. The other one is in, um... Patients, because you're going to cause an increase in the urinary bladder contractions. If a patient's like postpartum, they just got post-op, some of the anesthetics are just kind of like wearing off yet and they don't really have enough bladder contractions. You can give them this drug and it can literally cause urinary bladder contraction and eliminate urine pretty well. So they're drugs that can be given in post-op, postpartum urinary uh, retention or post-op or kind of like generally like ileus, uh, kind of post-op ileus or gastroparesis. They're kind of decent drugs. Methacholine. Okay. This one is loving the M3 receptor as well, but it only really prefers it in one particular area. It really only prefers this in the bronchial smooth muscle. So when you give methacholine, what happens is it actually is going to, again, bind onto the M3 receptors in the bronchial smooth muscle and cause what? Well, it causes contraction. Contraction of the smooth muscle will cause bronchospasm. Zach, why in the world would I give a bronchospastic drug to somebody? That's a terrible idea. We we don't really give this as a true treatment. It's a diagnostic test. So in patients who have what's called uh, uh, asthma or COPD, particularly asthma, I, I may add, we want to know if their bronchial smooth muscle is hyper So they're sensitive to any bronchospastic agent. So asthma patients are super hyper-responsive. If you give them a little bit of methicoline, they will take it and and cause an intense bronchospasm. And it'll cause their forced expiratory vital capacity or their forced expiratory volume within one second to drastically decrease, like sometimes more than 20% from their baseline. And so that's why we use it as a bronchial provocation test to help us to diagnose patients who have asthma that aren't presenting with an asthma exacerbation. So a patient comes in, they have a diagnosis or you think that they have asthma, but they're not exhibiting asthma symptoms. You can provoke
0: their asthma symptoms with this drug. So that's the thing to think about. That's uh, referred to as a methacholine challenge test, right? That is correct, my man. Oh brother. I always thought that was crazy. <laughs> like here, let me give you uh, some drugs to absolutely make your condition way worse. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I feel so bad.
1: For the yeah. Patient. It, it's definitely kind of a, a, I've never done it before, um, but it would definitely make my, my, my butthole pucker doing that one. I don't know if I'd be a very big fan of that yeah,
0: one. I was like, Hey, sorry about this, but you're not going to like <laughs> me. <laughs> yeah, I know
1: exactly. So that leads us into the last kind of like two drug categories, a combo. This is your pilocarpine and your car- carbacol. Now, these do have a little bit of nicotinic receptor uh, agonism, and they also have a little bit of muscarinic receptor um, agonism. Um, when I say these, carbacol is mainly the one that has the uh, nicotinic agonism, not as not so much with pilocarpine. Now, the thing is, is do we use these often? To be honest with you, we don't really use these that often, the pilocarpine and the carbacol. But if you were to think about it, they love the muscarinic receptors, Okay, both of them. If they love muscarinic receptors, the question is, is which muscarinic receptors do they prefer? They actually prefer the M3 receptors. So if they prefer the M3 receptors, what you're going to see with this is that it's actually going to bind on to the M3 receptors that are present um, on the uh, generally on the pupil and then even on the, like the ciliary body. And so what happens here is if you think about it, if they bind onto the, to the pupil muscle, so the pupil has two kind of uh, stimulation, dual innervation, if you will. Sympathetic causes dilation. Parasympathetic causes constriction. So if you give this drug, you're going to kind of do what? Cause pupil constriction. If you constrict the pupil, what's really kind of weird with this is think about this, guys. When you constrict the pupil, you actually kind of cause the muscle itself To kind of be more thin and less bulky at the base. And so it doesn't block off what's called the canal of Schlem. (laughs) Such a weird name, but I love that name. (laughs) I know. (laughs) So whenever you kind of, you constrict the people, you, you make it like, you make it thin at the bases and not as chunky. So it doesn't compress that, uh, scleral junction, corneal scleral junction of the canal of Schlem and it improves aqueous humor drainage. So that's kind of an interesting concept here is that you can kind of, in a way, cause the pupil to constrict, thin out the bases, don't compress the sclerovenous sinus and improve drainage. So pylocarpine it can be given topically in glaucoma patients who you really need to improve their drainage. Um the other thing that we can use pylocarpine for is again it loves the M3 receptors on the glands uh especially like the tear uh, the lacrimal glands and the salivary glands. So in patients who have a disease um, of their salivary glands or the lacrimal glands, maybe they got like a ton of radiation to their head and neck um, and they have what's called xerostomia where they have like a dry mouth um, and, or maybe they have Sjogren's syndrome, um, which is kind of an autoimmune disease where they attack their lacrimal glands and salivary glands and they can't produce a lot of like lacrimal fluid or salivary fluid. We can actually give this drug to hopefully help them to pump out some of that fluid. So that's another indication of pilocarpine. Um, the, uh, other thing that you can do is you can, you can reverse another drug called, um, uh, atropine with pilocarpine as well, but that's usually it's to reverse the effect. So Atropine is an anticholinergic. So in other words, if it binds onto the M3 receptors that are present on the pupil, it will cause pupil dilation. Um, and that causes that can cause problems in certain patients with glaucoma. So you can actually reverse that with topical pilocarpine. So, again, pilocarpine, carbacol, you can use these carbacol, I'm not going to lie to you guys, we don't use it that often, and the reason why is is it has nicotinic and uh, muscarinic receptor agonism, and so that can be somewhat kind of like not a very uh, good side effect profile with that one, but pilocarpine can be somewhat utilized, and again, Loves the M3 receptors that are present on the pupil and the M3 receptors present on the glands. So it can cause pupil di- uh, constriction, improving glaucoma uh, pre- pressures, and also can cause tear and salivary production in Chagrin syndrome or radiation-induced kind of um, destruction of the glands as well. And then again, you can reverse atropine if the patient has too much pupil um, dilation from atropine. But that would be the big thing. So Bethanacol, GI, uh, um, the bladder, gonna cause contraction of those, methicholine, bronchial smooth muscle, pilocarpine, the primary one, gland secretion, and pupillary constriction to treat glaucoma, and then reverses the medriasis from atropine. There is, um, one more, uh, that I want you guys to know here, and this is another drug that is called adenosine. Adenosine is a really interesting one that maybe you guys have heard of. It's sometimes given to patients who are tacking and tacking away, right? So they're in an SVT, so supraventricular tachycardia. And what adenosine does is it's a muscarinic receptor, okay? It's a muscarinic receptor agonist. So it loves the muscarinic receptors. And what it does is you give this drug and it binds onto the, which one? The M2 receptor. That's the only one that's present really on the heart. When it binds onto the M2 receptor, it causes the decrease in the conduction through the AV node. And so what did I say it, do, it will do again? It'll reduce the heart rate. So that's what we would give this patients to whenever they have a very profound supraventricular tachycardia and we're trying to abort that, we can give adenosine. Okay, my friends, we covered bethanacol, methicoline, pylocarpine, car- carbacol don't really use that much because of the side effects because of having nicotinic agonism. And then on top of that, we also covered adenosine. Let's now move to the other ones that cause indirect agonism. In other words, they they inhibit acetylcholine. So they act as an acetylcholine inhibitor. Okay. So they inhibit the acetylcholine enzyme, which prevents the degradation of acetylcholine and keeps acetylcholine higher in the synapse. What are these drugs? All right. Edrophonium is one, physostigmine, neostigmine, peritostigmine, and there's ones that we'll really quickly glaze over at the end of this called dinepazil, ribostigmine, and galantamine. We're going to focus on the ones prior to that though. All right. So edrophonium, again, remember, please don't forget, all of these are acetylcholinesterase inhibitors. So edrophonium is a really interesting one. So uh, as Rob pointed out, methacholine, not kind of a nice test that you'd really want to perform in an asthma patient to cause bronchial provocation, bronchial spasm and kind of provoke their asthma symptoms. There's another drug (laughs) it's called edrophonium, but in a way it's kind of a cool drug. (laughs) I think it's actually kind of it can help you. So there's actually a benefit to this one. We don't commonly give it as much anymore, but I, I, I really thought it was a cool test. So patients may have a disease called um, myasthenia gravis and in myasthenia gravis, they have acetylcholine receptor antibodies that basically attack the nicotinic receptors. When they attack the nicotinic receptors, they block the nicotinic receptors and prevent acetylcholine from binding. Um, and then acetylcholine, if they can't bind, they don't perform muscle contraction. And the patient develops weakness, very profound weakness. So what you can do is, is you can give them this drug called edrophonium. And here's the key thing. Edrophonium is crazy short acting. I mean, it doesn't really last very long, They're very quick. You give them edrophonium. Edrophonium will inhibit the acetylcholine esterase. Acetylcholine esterase won't break down the acetylcholine. And so your acetylcholine levels in the synapse start increasing and increasing and increasing that it pushes the acetylcholine antibodies in myosinia gravis out of the active site on the nicotinic receptor. And then acetylcholine now can bind onto the nicotinic receptor because it's kind of like a competitive kind of concept. So if you have, you increase the amount of acetylcholine, you can cause it to beat out the uh, the receptor antibody at that site and then bind onto the nicotinic receptor, load it with sodium, depolarize it, calcium release, and skeletal muscle contraction, which will improve the patient's strength. So we actually give this as a drug, which I find fascinating in patients who you don't know if they have myasthenia gravis. If they have this, you give them the drug. What do you think is going to happen? It's going to improve their symptoms, which is really cool. What Rob might not be a fan of is let's say that you're wrong and the patient doesn't have um, myasthenia gravis. Let's say that they have uh, the unfortunate cholinergic crisis. In other words, you, you gave them another drug that we're going to talk about in a second called pyridostigmine, but you just gave them like way too high of a dose. When you gave them too high of a dose, it was inhibiting way too many of those acetylcholine esterases and the acetylcholine levels were just way too high that the muscle was getting overstimulated and it was causing weakness in that way. Okay. In those ways, cholinergic crisis and myasthenia gravis can be sometimes difficult to differentiate. Guess what I could do to differentiate them? If it's myasthenia gravis and a crisis there and I give them edrophonium, it would improve their strength. If I gave them edrophonium, I'm going to cause even more inhibition of the acetylcholine esterase, increase the acetylcholines even more shortly, and worsen their cholinergic crisis, if that's the situation. So, it, was, it used to be a really cool test to kind of decide, like patient comes out patient, they're like, man, doc, I don't know what's going on with me, and you're not sure, dang it. I'm giving them pyridostigmine for their myasthenia gravis. Could this be I gave them too much pyridostigmine, or could it be because their myasthenia gravis is getting worse? All right, here, take some edrophonium, shoot you up with it. If you get better, it's a crisis of your myasthenia. If you get worse, it's I got to drop the dose of your pyridostigmine. Pretty cool though, right, Rob? It, it is pretty cool. Yeah. yeah. So I think that's kind of an interesting concept. But again, big thing to remember is it's inhibiting the acetylcholine esterase to increase the acetylcholine at what site primarily, my friends? Please don't forget this primarily at the skeletal muscle site. So it's going to really affect the nicotinic receptors. Physostigmine is another one. Now this one, Again, inhibits acetylcholine esterase, which increases the acetylcholine. With this one, you're going to see some interesting concepts with this one. So it loves to bind on to the muscarinic receptors. So it loves to bind on to the M3 receptors primarily. So it'll hit the GIT. So it'll cause increased GIT muscle contractions. It'll hit the bladder, so it'll increase the bladder contractions. It'll hit the, um, uh, the pupil and cause pupillary constriction, which can improve uh, sclerovenous drainage, which improves glaucoma. And on top of that, it may be a reversal agent for anticholinergic drugs. So, you know, when patients take like atropine, too much of it, or they take antipsychotics or tricyclic antidepressants and they overdose on them, those are anticholinergics. I can give them a cholinergic drug to oppose that. So those are other indications for physostigmine, okay? One of the downsides to this drug, please be careful with it, high doses can cause um, seizures or convulsions. So please be careful with that. Neostigmine is the next one. Neostigmine is a really interesting one as well. So again, it inhibits the acetylcholine esterase. And what I think is really important here, and I don't know if I maybe enunciated this enough, but when you inhibit acetylcholine esterase, you increase the acetylcholine synapses all over the body. It just may be that some of them prefer the neuromuscular junction or they prefer some of the muscarinic receptor sites at other target organs. So just please be aware of that. Edrophonium, it just happens to be really, really good in the neuromuscular junction. Physostigmine happens to be really good at any of the muscarinic receptor sites neostigmine is another really interesting one. So neostigmine actually is going to act on, again, the M3 receptors. So it'll increase the acetylcholine in the synapse by inhibiting the acetylcholine esterase. won't break down acetylcholine. More of the acetylcholine will bind onto the M3 receptors. So you're going to get increased GI motility, increased urinary bladder contraction. That's one thing. But it really powerfully loves to hit those nicotinic receptors in the neuromuscular junction. If you hit those receptors at the neuromuscular junction, you're going to do what? Increase the what? Contractility. So this is very, very beneficial in patients who are having weakness due to not getting enough nicotinic receptor stimulation. So in patients who have myasthenia gravis or Lambert-Eaton syndrome, neostigmine may be pretty beneficial. Another drug that's actually a little bit more beneficial than neostigmine um, is peritostigmine because it's just a little bit... Longer um, action, uh, half lifetime. So you may get a little bit more benefit from this one. So neostigmine, peritostigmine, very similar kind of effect. They're going to inhibit the acetylcholine esterase, increase acetylcholine in the synapses at both the M3 receptors. So the increased GI motility, increase urinary bladder contractions. But they're also going to do what, my friends? powerfully increase the acetylcholine to bind onto nicotinic receptors of the skeletal muscles and improve strength and contractility of the muscle in chronic myasthenia gravis and in Lambert Eaton syndrome. All right. So quick recap, guys. Again, Bethanacol, again, muscarinic type of receptor agonist. How is it going to do it? It's going to work at the smooth muscle of the GIT and the bladder. What other ones work at the smooth muscle of the GIT and the bladder? It's just so we can add them together. Again, physostigmine works there. Neostigmine works there. Pyridostigmine works there. All of those work there. They just do it in what ways? Bethanecol does it by directly hitting the M three receptor. Physostigmine, neostigmine, pyridostigmine do it indirectly by breaking, uh, preventing the breakdown of acetylcholine by inhibiting acetylcholinesterase. Okay, so that's a really really important thing to remember. Methacholine again being mean and causing bronchial provocation by causing bronchospasm. Pylocarpine, again, remember that this is primarily the glands, lacrimal glands, salivary glands, trying to promote secretion there and chagrins, radiation induced type of destruction of those glands. And then also in glaucoma to, again, kind of allow for a pupil constriction to narrow, uh, to uh, open up that uh, canal schlem to improve drainage. Now, Adrophonium, we said really kind of short-acting kind of acetylcholine esterase inhibitor. So it's really good at differentiating patients who have myasthenic crisis from cholinergic crisis, but also can improve myasthenia symptoms and so help you to aid in the diagnosis of myasthenia. And then again, we said physostigmine can also be decent in glaucoma. And then we also talked about how it can even reverse some of the anticholinergic toxicity. Just be careful. High doses can cause convulsions. One other drug category that we got to hit here. The other drug category is donepezil, rivastigmine, and galantamine. These are weird. So these are colon, uh, cholinergic agonists, and they do kind of work to, again, inhibit the acetylcholinesterases, but they do it primarily in the central nervous system. And so they increase acetylcholines present within the central nervous system, which is beneficial because acetylcholine does have an important concept, Um in playing a role in cognition and memory. And so you know patients who unfortunately suffer with the, t- the devastating disease of Alzheimer's. One of the theories behind Alzheimer's is that there is a decrease in the level of acetylcholine. Um, and so that can cause decrease in cognition, decrease in quality of life. If we give donepezil, rivastigmine, galantamine, they have the ability, they're the only ones, they're tertiary kind of carbamates. They can cross the blood brain barrier and inhibit the acetylcholinesterase that's only present in the CNS. And so they can actually increase acetylcholine in the synapses in the central nervous system to improve their actual memory, their cognition, and hopefully their quality of life. So that's an important thing to remember last kind of like thing that I want to talk about. So we talked about direct agonists. We talked about indirect agonists. There's one more thing that I need to add on here. Indirect agonists that we discussed, edrophonium, physostigmine, neostigmine, peritostigmine, donepezil, um, the rivastigmine, and the galantamine, all of those are reversible. And that's an important component. So they're reversible. So you can stop them from continuing to inhibit that acetylcholinesterase enzyme. There was some people, uh, unfortunately, that came up with ways to develop irreversible, uh, cholinergic agonists. In other words, they can continue to block the acetylcholine esterase, inhibit that, and cause acetylcholine levels to be so high that you can't stop it. Um, and this is where they came up with things. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. It's called sarin gas, the nerve gas. And so that's one of those that can literally cause, you know, significant death because If you cause so much acetylcholine to be released, it can hit those actual nicotinic receptors nonstop, keep the muscle stimulated that it can actually cause paralysis. It can cause these intense contractures and again, can cause death. So, all right,
0: Zach, so let's finish this podcast episode out in style. So we have a a patient scenario here trying to think about when things aren't going your way, right? There's some adverse effects. We got to know what's going on here. So you're in an outpatient setting. You have a patient with Myasthenia gravis, and you prescribe this particular patient pyridostigmine, but unfortunately, it's the wrong dosage. It's just, it's just not right. And what happens is this patient goes into a cholinergic crisis. They de- start developing oh, man. some very. I know. Hey, it's your fault. <laughs> <laughs> they start developing some really bad adverse effects. What might this look like, Zach? And and boy, do I hope you got a way of remembering it. Maybe a mnemonic. <laughs> yeah. So. It would be terrible, but unfortunately it's pretty common.
1: Sometimes you can prescribe patient myasthenia who has myasthenia gravis if you just give them like a really heavy dose of pretostigmine. And now you're just inhibiting so many acetylcholine esterases that those acetylcholine levels are super, super high. That now the acetylcholine is so high that it's causing just overstimulation of your skeletal muscles. Yeah, I think that's a really important. Remember, if you're causing overstimulation of the skeletal muscles, it can actually worsen their weakness, which can be confusing, right? That's what we said, that sometimes patients can come in who have myasthenia gravis and they have worsening weakness. You're like, dang, I don't know if this is the dang crisis of their myasthenia or if it's the cholinergic crisis from the drug I gave them. You can try that edrophonium. But either way, if I prove that it's definitely the drug that I gave and they're having worsening weakness, that's a scary thing. The other thing is it can cause a lot of acetylcholine to be present within the central nervous system to the point where it can actually cause like seizures and convulsions. Um, that'd be pretty terrifying. The other thing is again, go through everything else. Um, if you go through, Uh, the the lacrimal glands, they'll be doing what? Well, you're going to be causing them to just pour lacrimal fluid like crazy. So they'll have intense lacrimation. Um, They'll be just drooling from their mouth because you're going to be stimulating their salivary glands to continue to produce saliva. Um, If you think about their heart, you're going to be causing overstimulation um, of the parasympathetic system there. So you're going to be kind of hitting those muscarinic two receptors and just they're going to be bradycardic, which will make your butthole tighten. Um, They also can uh, hit the bronchial smooth muscle and the bronchial smooth muscle. If you're again kind of hitting those, you're going to cause bronchospasm. This is all terrible uh, things to see, but um, the other thing is the pupil. Again, if you're hitting the pupil again, you're kind of causing the pupil to constrict. So they may have like these pinpoint meiotic pupils and, um, if you're also hitting the GIT, they may also unfortunately be having a lot of uh, increased motility there with uh, some diarrhea. Um, They also may have a lot of secretions from their GIT. So just, just terrible things, man. And so this can look really, really rough. And Oftentimes, the way that if you want to, to remember this is remember dumbbells. So uh, dumbbells, so D for diarrhea, U for excessive urination, M for meiosis, which is those pinpoint pupils, B for bradycardia, B for bronchospasm, E for excitation of the CNS and the muscles. So the seizure slash convulsions and the weakness L for lacrimation. S for sweating, another S for salivation, um, and then another S for like GI secretion. So you can see a lot of these nasty things with a cholinergic crisis, which is not a great thing to see. In those particular scenarios, the most worrisome sign for me is going to be the bradycardia because it can be pretty intense and it can cause a patient to like almost like go into cardiac arrest. So or become hypotensive. So in those situations, you want to be able to first off, obviously discontinue the offending agent, stop their piretostigmine. And then from there, give them atropine. That'll help to be able to improve their heart rate because that's an anticholinergic. And then I would also give them maybe something considerably like um, pralidoxine, um, pralidoxime is also going to be beneficial because again, it's going to be an anticholinergic and try to oppose all of these other actions. So you can do atropine by itself, or you can give pralidoxime, and hopefully with the anticholinergic drug as the antidote it'll basically block all the excessive amount of acetylcholine in the, again, the GIT causing diarrhea, the urinary bladder causing excessive urination, the pupil causing meiosis, the uh, heart causing bradycardia, the smooth muscle in the bronchios causing bronchospasm, the muscles in CNS causing convulsions and weakness and blocking the salivary glands and the lacrimal glands preventing a lot of salivation and kind of uh, secretions there as well. So that's hopefully the goal with these and hopefully something that you don't really see, but I tell you what, you'd have to give them some, I would have had to give them some pretty heavy doses of predastigma to see that, but it is possible. And do be aware of that, my friends.
0: All right. Well, there you have it. We have covered cholinergic agonists. We are all done with this one. We're going to keep moving on though. The next episode we're going to move on to is muscarinic antagonists, and we hope to see you there.